We're seeing more and more interest in biodiversity, carbon and natural capital. And my sense is there's a huge amount of money and institutions out there that are, are looking for projects to invest in. What they're lacking at the moment is any sense of certainty, if you like. And I do feel that some of these markets need to take a, a little bit more risk. Hello and welcome back to Zebra Talk. My name is Matt Mayer and I'm your host. And today I'm in conversation with Glenn Anderson. It's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking that innovation is simply about technology and process improvement, but it comes in many guises, as we'll find out today. But whatever innovation you're looking at, the motivation, the passion to problem solve comes from a curiosity and a sense of calling that is the core thread that runs through innovators in any sector. Glenn is an agricultural landowner in Norfolk in the UK. He's also the founder and leader of the groundbreaking Wendling Beck Project, a project tackling climate change, biodiversity loss, and innovation in the market for environmental credits. All of that taking place against the backdrop of geopolitical distractions, shifting environmental policy sands, particularly in the UK, and an economic system not accustomed to the patience needed to address some of the world's toughest challenges. These are key issues as we reflect on the achievements and the non-achievements of COP27. Glenn, welcome back to Zebra Talk. Lovely to be talking to you this morning. Glenn, welcome to Zebra Talk. It's fantastic to see you. Last time I saw you, which was only a few weeks ago, um, was up in Norfolk, and it was an absolute pleasure to get out and about um, and see the real uh, Wendling Beck project. Just for regular listeners to the podcast, I mean, we're normally talking um, about uh, market innovation, we're talking about entrepreneurship, we're talking about organisational psychology and the the future of organisations. We've got a slightly different tack here today talking to uh, to Glenn, but I promise that all of those themes are interweaved into this project. What we are talking about is the is the Wendling Beck project. And um, just to start us off, Glenn, I, I wonder if you could just tell our listeners what that project is and try to bring it to life um, as, a, as a physical project as well as a, as a, as a business project. Yeah, thanks, Matt. So um, the Wendling Beck is a um, landscape scale nature restoration and habitat creation project. It's uh, right bang in the centre of Norfolk. Um, and it's, it's kind of looking at new mechanisms within the, the sort of policy arena um, to try and monetize that. So we're moving away from a kind of a typical farm landscape and looking at how we can use new policies to to kind of underpin new sort of finance regimes, if you like, build some resilience into the existing businesses. It comprises of um, four different farmers um, and four, four farms within that holding. We also have Norfolk Wildlife Trust and Norfolk County Council as landowners in it. And the wider collaboration actually brings in the Nature Conservancy, who are a, a big American nature NGO, Norfolk Rivers Trust, Norfolk Farming and Wildlife Advisory Group. And then we actually have Anglian Water as a private sector organisation, helping us as a mentor, but also as a kind of a buyer of um, environmental credits as well. So it's, it's very collaborative and we're starting to see that collaborations are, are quite a rare thing in in this field um, farmers don't 
naturally collaborate terribly well together. I think that's something that we will see in the future. And, and certainly government policy is, is trying to encourage farmers down that avenue. So that's kind of us in a nutshell. If, if our listeners were looking at the Wendling Beck project, or Wendling Beck, what what would they see? I mean, what what does that look like from a physical perspective? So it's a it's a big block of land, just under two thousand acres, just north of the market town of Dereham. It has a, a river, the Wendling Beck River, from where the project gets its name, which is a, a small chalk stream running right through the middle of it from south to north, and then it has two kind of big lungs if you like if you were looking at it for as a bird's eye view and they are currently in quite intensive arable operations we do have some black currants so we have a black currant farmer amongst the uh, the mix as well and we will look to retain some of that black currant production but in a more regenerative system as we go forward when i sort of summarize the project in my head i i think and I'll do this in a crass way so you can you can challenge me around it. But I, I kind of think that the the canvas that you're painting on is a is a natural one. It's a it's a landscape canvas that you're painting on. But actually what the project is exploring is is something very commercial, which is uh, how to, to innovate in the way that you can commercialize and monetize the value of land going forward. Is that is that too simplistic? I think it's maybe a bit narrow. So I think it's probably a bit wider than that. I think we, we're really looking at how we value natural capital and looking at that kind of natural capital account within the landholding. This is something that's relatively new, that's certainly new to us, but it's relatively new um, within the kind of the finance institutions as well. Within the last decade, the ONS and, and those government have been starting to value the underlying natural capital. So if, if you think that the natural capital is everything that we get for free from nature, but it actually underpins about 40% of all of the economies globally. So we're really looking at how we can invest in that because as a, as a species, we're actually eroding our natural capital much faster than nature is able to replenish it. And if you think that that's, that's underpinning the entire financial markets and all of the institutions, then that's not a, a great long-term prospect. So that's where this interest in, in natural capital is coming from, We're looking to build some resilience into it so that it is actually there for us in the future. I know from, from our previous conversations that part of the catalyst for you personally getting interested in this was a, was a deep sense of the need to respond to not only the, the climate threat, but biodiversity challenges more, more generally. From a commercial perspective, you know, for landowners, for farmers, there was a, there was another catalyst, which was the the removal of the subsidy system. Is that a key driver in this project for you still, or is that broader desire to think about the the value of natural capital really the driver going forward? Well, I think at the outset it was a it was a big driver for us. The rationale for this project was we're on very light land here. The landowners were aware that the subsidy regime was going to be phased out. Subsidies for us are the mechanism that underwrites the risk of production. They're the thing that says, well, we've just lost some money this year because we've had a drought, but we're still going to plant something next year because you've got this underlying kind of safety net being subsidies. Without them in place, it makes a, it makes that prospect quite difficult. There's only so many years on a lightland farm that you can do that. And farming generally is hugely at risk from climate change. It is the single biggest risk to food security. So we needed to look at how we were going to build some financial resilience into the business going forward. So 
ecosystem services, as we call them, looking at investing in nature was a great opportunity for us on land that is not particularly productive. And we can still still weave some kind of food production within the story as well. So we don't want to move away from that completely. Ultimately, we're still farming the land. We're just creating a lot more nature. So for example, we'll use livestock to manage the habitat, but that will also go into the food chain. At the moment, we're growing cereals and, and pulses, which will go into livestock feed. We, that's quite a carbon hungry process. We can kind of cut out the middleman, if you will, and have the livestock on the grass in the first place and have a much more efficient and much more sustainable way of doing things. So I guess subsidies or the loss of subsidies took us down this route. But as we've gone down this route, it's become a bit more holistic. We're very aware that this does need to stand on its own two feet. This is about creating a template and a blueprint that other landowners can adopt. So it needs to stack up financially. We're not afraid of that and we're not shy about that. It needs to be a successful financial me mechanism, but it should also build a ton of environmental resilience into these businesses as they move forward. I think that, that idea that it can be a model that's replicated is a really interesting one for me and a very innovative one. So I'd love, I'd love to come back to that. But before I do, I was just going to ask you, really, I mean, a number of our listeners will, will be familiar with projects like NEP and they'll heard the phrase rewilding. How is this different to a, to a pure rewilding project? So rewilding is non-intervention. It's, it's where you just let nature take care of itself. Um, this is highly managed conservation. So we are setting out to deliver a specific habitat types to a specific condition within a specific amount of time. And that takes a high level of management in, in terms of a how you design and then implement the capital works that goes into creating those habitats but then how you maintain those over time with factors like climate change which make that very difficult and that whole management regime with livestock and removing nutrients from the landscape and and al allowing those kind of natural species to thrive so rewilding is is very much about allowing natural processes to just do their own thing. We are accelerating natural processes in some ways because we're able to do that through the design and the management. So ultimately we will create a much wilder landscape. And in some ways I think that we, we will end up in a similar place. And you know, we're, we're actually working with, with NEP, a huge amount of respect for them as a, as a business. And they were really the pioneers on a, on a lot of this, but we're taking a slightly different approach. What we are seeing is as they go through the transition and they have some fantastic habitat there already, but nature wants to kind of through succession move through some of those optimal habitats to something else. Ultimately, a lot of um, habitat will revert to woodland. So there is an argument that they might need to kind of intervene. And if they want to keep some of the habitats they've created at their optimum performance, then that will take some management as well. So I do wonder whether we will end up in similar places, but through a different journey. And I also wonder whether we'll be able to get there slightly quicker than nature would do on its own. The other thing just to mention is many of the really high quality habitats, the triple SIs and the protected sites that we have within the UK are actually either renaturalized man-made landscapes in, the, in themselves or have had quite a lot of human intervention at some point in the past. So 
there are very few really wild habitats left, certainly in the UK, but really across the world. You know, unless you've got true wilderness where you've got apex predators and they're moving on sort of big herbivores that are, that are managing that habitat, then you don't really get true wilderness. Humans are everywhere and, we're, and our footprint is quite heavy on the planet. So it's kind of a moot point, but we'll create a wilder landscape and hopefully it will be a, a great place that people will, will come and see and enjoy. I love that um, idea of accelerated conservation. When I visited the project, it looked like a lot of patience was going to be required to see it through. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really long term process. So we've really only just started on this journey out of the, the sort of the 2000 acres of project area. We've done about 175, something like that. That's with various different habitat types. So we're only just scratching the surface and it's only a year down the line. So there is a pain barrier to go through. We're getting quite a lot of, you know, quite a big weed burden at the moment. As we go through and manage that over time, it will just get better and better. I think by year three, you'll start to see the shape of what's coming. And then obviously it's a really long-term process. I mean, it's it's a minimum of 30 years. Some of the policies that are underpinning this, like biodiversity net gain, it's actually embedded within the policy that it needs to be there for 30 years. But really, this is an in perpetuity vision. So we, we expect to deliver this and it's, it's just there for generations to come. And hopefully that habitat will transition to, to something really spectacular. Whether we get to see that within our lifetime, I'm not sure. But a lot of the the really great landscapes within the UK were envisioned by people that that never got to see the best of them. So, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating mind, mindset and an, an impressive one that I, I definitely admire that that approach. And and I guess that's one of the points of difference from you know many of the other innovative businesses that we might talk about. That they're just the time frame um, involved. You know, most most of the founders that we deal with are looking for you know, five to ten year return and exit. The idea that you might not even see it in your lifetime is interesting in terms of you being a founder, if I can call you that. But more perhaps more importantly, from an investment perspective, I mean it must be a difficult backdrop against which to seek investment into those kinds of projects. We're seeing more and more interest in biodiversity, carbon and natural capital. And my sense is there's a huge amount of money and institutions out there that are are looking for projects to invest in. What they're lacking at the moment is any sense of certainty, if you like. And I do feel that some of these markets need to take a a little bit more risk. Um, We are seeing more projects emerge, but we're trying to build a, a 50 to 100 year investment model investors might come and go through the cycle of that. We're seeing some interest in sort of regulated market exchanges where they're looking to strip these projects down and kind of repackage them into into five-year sort of investment cycles. And I think that's an interesting prospect. I'm not a financier. I don't really understand exactly how those markets work. It's really interesting that there's organizations, asset management companies and banks out there that are really looking to to start investing in in this. And I do I can see that coming. I think you'll see quite a lot of ESG money flowing into this sector as climate change starts to dominate and we really have to start investing in that carbon cycle there's a there's a real distinct correlation between biodiversity and carbon that's well proven and i do think that you will start to see a big chunk of investment come into this sector i definitely share your optimism about that and certainly hearing those hearing those noises in various markets and and starting to see that investor interest 
if we agree that there's a, an investable proposition there, which I think think we do, perhaps help our if you can help our listeners understand what is it that's the the tradable element that comes out of the project. What what is it that, that can can be monetized? We're in a relatively unique position within the UK because we've obviously come out of the European Union. We then had an Agriculture Act sort of swiftly followed by a Environment Act. And that actually laid down a few key policies for us. So one of those being biodiversity net gain. So that's embedded within the Environment Act. It's primary legislation. Um, and that's the principle that a developer to to get planning permission will require any habitat loss within the development site to to be offset or um, to be replaced within the footprint of the development site. So we know that within brownfield sites, um, developers will be able to offset most of that within the footprint of the site. But once you get to greenfield sites, that becomes much more difficult. So they have the option of offsetting some of these habitat units in dedicated projects, ideally as close to the site as possible. Although that's a kind of a, a policy instrument that does start to, to create a tangible market within the, this sector. So that gives us something that we can create. We can create biodiversity units um, through the creation of habitats and then sell those to developers. So that's one example. We then have policies like nutrient neutrality. So we're seeing that here in Norfolk that can't build any overnight accommodation without offsetting that nutrient load, making sure there's no adverse impact. So that goes back to a Dutch court case against the the Dutch government. And we're, we're sort of seeing a few challenges to that at the moment. But my sense is that within the development sector that they've accepted it now, planning is on hold across quite a lot of the planning authorities where this is happening because... At the moment, we haven't got the solutions in place, but they are coming down the line fairly rapidly, and hopefully that will free up the planning system. But again, it's an example of how that's monetized. So although these are government policies, and the government wants to be fairly hands-off in how this is regulated and monitored after that process, that mechanism allows us to create something tangible and actually have a a real-world value. You don't get that across Europe because these policies aren't in place. There are some examples of it elsewhere internationally, but it does give us a great head start for the ability to to start to really sell environmental credits, basically. That market innovation aspect, that, that creation of a brand new market of something is fascinating here. And I, I'm pleased to see the UK leading the way in helping develop that through projects like Wendling Beck. Listening to what you're saying, I'm sure listeners will be thinking, well, is this government policy driven in terms of the, the offset schemes? Surely this must be a public money type project. But from what, what I'm hearing, this is principally funded by private money. Is, is that right? And how important is private capital in this system? This is private money. The nice thing about that is gives us the ability to operate in a private market. So it's supply and demand based, values rise and fall. It means that we're not monitored constantly as we have been in a subsidy regime. You've always got the RPA looking over your shoulder and making sure that you're compliant with their rules and regulations. So it is still fairly heavily governed in the way, you know, the regime of of the policy, but it is a private market and frees us up to work in a slightly different way. We are seeing examples where government want to see this blended finance model. So this is the principle of using public and private money to fund some of these projects. And we've heard the terms of public money for public goods. 
we deliver that within this project, but we are still creating quite a lot of public benefits that we're not necessarily monetizing. So things like air quality, health and well-being, access to nature, access to open space, public access routes and things like that. We're not charging for that. We're not creating any form of credit from that. They're a co-benefit of what the private market is driving. So, you know, hopefully that's a win-win. We can start to value that. We can value that within our natural capital accounts. And those values back to society are quite significant, but they are a co-benefit. So it's a good example of government creating a set of policies which stimulate the private markets, but then end up with with sort of multiple co-benefits which benefit the public. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, on the podcast, we talk a lot about impact and that sort of broader societal benefit as a sort of tangible byproduct of what's going on. I think it's really, really important for people's engagement and interest in these sorts of projects. We've talked a fair bit about finance and money. You used a phrase last time I met you, which was nature first, finance second. And I just wondered what that actually meant to you personally. When we started the project, it was mainly financially motivated. So we were really looking at how we could build some financial resilience into the business, but also take the opportunity to, to you know, reduce our carbon footprint and actually do something for nature at the same time. I think as we've gone through the journey, we've become a bit more altruistic about that. And I guess as part of the design process of, of really focused on the nature part. So to the point where it's become probably more important to us than the than the finance part. I do believe that if we get the nature part as right as we possibly can, then the money follows. I think if you set out on these projects to principally drive the financial element, then the nature part suffers as a result. And overall, in the long term, the finance will suffer as well. Whereas if you really invest in the, the natural piece of it, then it opens other opportunities. So an example of that might be, you know, we're creating habitats and creating this landscape to deliver biodiversity, which we can then sell credits for. But actually, if if we create this beautiful environment, people want to come and see that. And maybe there's an ecotourism model which sits on top of this, which we haven't even built into our financial projections. So you start to get kind of you know, accumulators in the finance model, which are really founded in the quality of the delivery and creating something amazing and beautiful that people want to experience. I really like that that phrase, accumulators. I think that, that captures a lot of what we've talked about and what you're trying to create. Perhaps in a moment, we can talk about some of the spin-off benefits and spin-off projects that have come, come from the work that you've done. But I just wanted to to pick up on, I guess, my interpretation of what you mean by nature. But I've been struck that if there's a lot of conversation about climate, there's a lot of conversation about about carbon. Some of these projects, particularly this one, are very rooted in, in not just in that, but in biodiversity generally as a public good, as a positive thing in society. To what extent is biodiversity the sort of poor relation of climate change in the public opinion, in your view? Well, we know there's a there's a really close correlation between the two and i'm not expert on this but there are are definitely experts out there who are starting to actually provide metrics on kind of the beneficial carbon effects of different species on the planet and that has a that has a kind of a real world value so that's where you start to see you know david attenborough in in blue planet start to put a price on a blue whale and i can't remember what that figure was there are people out there that are starting to value 
natural assets and individual species and you can convert that back to a, a carbon cost as well i think people experience climate change firsthand so you know we've just come out of a very very hot summer um, and a major drought now everybody in this part of the world realized that that was not something normal and that actually we're starting to see the effects of climate change firsthand whereas biodiversity i think is is probably a bit less understood and people still still see species in the countryside as they're as they're out and about and i think there's probably quite a lot of farmers that still feel that they've got some good levels of biodiversity different species because they see them but i think what we've what we've really lost is the abundance and the abundance of species and if you think about when you're just driving around the countryside on a summer's evening you don't get anywhere near the amount of bugs and, and sort of flies and stuff on your on your windscreen and your bumper that you're used to. And that has a knock-on effect all the way through the food chain. So we know from the, the species surveys that we're doing now compared to historical species surveys that, you know, many of those species have got nowhere near the number and abundance that they used to have. And some of them have been lost entirely. So it's really important that we do invest in biodiversity. I, I think there's a, you know, a distinct correlation between the two ultimately i'm not sure it really matters because i think the two are, are so close closely related that whether you're investing for carbon or you're investing for biodiversity you're going to get both within the kind of the government regime we don't actually look to individual species to reintroduce back into the countryside we're about creating habitats the mantra being that if you create the habitat the species will come so hopefully that will be the case and you know we're quite confident that it will be We've identified a, a couple of times potential spin-outs and spin-offs from the from the project that you're doing, and the, the eco tourism was a um, was an interesting one. But I, I wonder what other business ideas, business models are, are flowing out from the work that you're doing. You know, what other ideas are you incubating, and also who's copying you? You know, what's what's happening around the country that's based on this project? We're building up a level of expertise as we go through the process, and a lot of this has never been done before. So we don't really have a template to copy. We're talking to as many people as we can. So I gave the example of NEP. We've got a great working relationship with them and we're, we're kind of learning from them and hopefully they'll be able to learn from, from us as well. As part of that kind of knowledge bank, we are just tentatively looking at, at building a consultancy. So we have, we have just set up a new company and are in the process of creating a consultancy with some of the key expertise that we've got around this project be able to to help other projects basically so that's that's kind of one example we're also seeing other projects come to us to kind of learn different pieces and we've just um, looking at another project in Cambridgeshire we're looking at basically replicating this model it's a completely different um, farm type but we do feel that we can we can deliver a, a really successful model there it's a really interesting project so as we go through this hopefully we can kind of replicate and scale because Wendling Beck on its own it's it's a nice to have in Norfolk it's great for the town of Durham it's right on their doorstep we're walking distance from the marketplace that's great but it doesn't change the world it doesn't save the world it doesn't reverse climate change but actually if you if you can take that model and replicate it and you get that finance model right to the point where other loan landowners and land managers want to adopt it because it's successful, then potentially that does change things a bit. And that does have a, a much wider, greater impact, not necessarily just in the UK, but internationally as well. 
one of the things that fascinates me about innovation generally is this innate quality of collaboration between innovative people. And I, I think people tend to think of innovation as being very proprietary and private. But clearly, there's a high degree of collaboration in, in this project and, and more broadly. I'm, I'm fascinated by how you make that work on the ground, particularly with farmers. I mean, I will not cast any aspersions. Farmers are often considered to be quite private people, quite territorial people. So how have you actually made that work in practice? We were very fortunate on this project that we had four landowners that were very like-minded. They were at similar positions where they they had other external businesses as well, away from the farm and, and maybe a slightly broader view of the kind of the wider world, if you like, and almost weren't stuck in that kind of hamster wheel of production. So I think farming is is quite a high pressure industry. Um, you're working against the weather all the time. You're constantly trying to get things cultivated, get things drilled, get things sprayed, get things harvested. You never have time to actually sit back and, and kind of reinvent your business or even, you know, a small change within a farming business is is quite a lot of effort. Uh, these farms were a little bit more hands-off, I guess. So none of us actually spend a huge amount of time sitting on a tractor. We're, we're using contractors in various different guises. We do have in-house labour and, and machinery and stuff as, as well. We had the ability to just take a, a slightly different view of how these businesses should be in the future. And hopefully we can help other landowners by having gone through the, some of the pain as well. In terms of collaboration, it has still been quite hard work, um, particularly on the legal side. So, so to create a single operating company that represents multiple landowners is actually quite difficult. We've got different business structures within there as well. We've got partnerships and limited companies that you're trying to bring together under one umbrella. And then we've got all of the kind of the policy mechanisms and instruments there's a new law coming out on the 1st of October, I believe, called a Conservation Covenant, which will bind the landholding to the to a responsible body for the duration of whatever action you're taking for nature. So these are all new things that we're testing. The best way to try and sell this to another farmer or landowner is, is really through proofs in the pudding. So if we can create an exemplar project, everybody wants to kick the tyres farmers are quite skeptical people they don't like change or nobody likes change but farmers find that quite hard to to adapt to simply because i think they're in this high pressure production system always fighting against the weather so we have started having these conversations outside of the project but the best way we think we can do that is to create it and then let people look over the fence and see whether they want to be part of that i love it yeah exemplar absolutely the right word for for what you're trying to do you mentioned in there that a number of the other people in the project had broader interest than just farming. Um, maybe just pick up a little bit on that. I mean, what's what's your own background and, and, and what skills from outside the industry do you think you brought to the project? So I, I grew up on a, a livestock farm in Cambridgeshire, um, fourth generation farm. So my, my family has been farming for as long as anybody can remember, but then went and did something different. So I actually studied furniture design um, I went to work for a, a big global furniture manufacturer and then end, ended up in consulting. So I started doing sort of commercial real estate for big blue chip organisations. So that kind of consulting mentality has, has probably helped a bit. Um, it certainly helped us in terms of writing grant bids and proposals and things like that. But it also gives you a bit of a wider perspective of business and life and everything else. 
one of our, our other landowners come to the project full time. His background is in finance and he was actually at the National Trust um, before he came back to the farm. That again, it gives us a bit more breadth. Um, it gives us a better understanding. He's, he's our in-house financial expert now. He's now leading on natural capital accounting as well so that's super helpful one of the other landowners actually was in the marines so he's got some pretty amazing experience and a broader mindset so yeah i think the other guys as well they've they've all got different skills and we're focusing on different elements of the project so rosie who's who's one of our, our next door landowner and a kind of a key part of starting this project is now becoming expert in regenerative farming and going through her kind of soil web training and that sort of thing. So that gives us another element to the project and everybody's able to kind of focus on their individual area of expertise, but then come back and collaborate to deliver something that's better than the sum of the parts. Yeah, really interesting. I see so many examples of great businesses that have come from taking inspiration from other industries and experience from other industries and, and translating them into a into a problem that needs solving or an opportunity that presents. And being able to do that as a group, I think, is, rather than just as an individual, is is a really special um, special opportunity. Finishing up our, our conversation, I'm really interested to know, you know if you hadn't done this, what what's what's the alternative to this on your own land? I think we would have been quite stuck. You, you just continue in that production cycle, I guess, and you just hope that the weather's a bit kinder to you. But our land is really light and we suffer particularly from drought. And this year was horrendous. So, we've, you know, we've had one of the worst droughts in, in living memory and that becomes quite difficult. So I think, honestly, I think we would have pushed the, the regen production thing. So regenerative agriculture being the principle of cutting nitrogen use and agrochemicals through having more of a natural balance within the, the soils and the way that the water is used within the soil and the crops and stuff. So that, that and, and we did start looking at that initially and then kind of really got into the the kind of nature creation piece so that's that's probably the route that we would be heading down again even on these soils it's that would still be quite a challenge i mean the other option is that you just sell up and and go and do something else ultimately this is our home as well and i think that's probably a distinction between farming and any other industry is it is a lifestyle choice farmers tend to to live close to the land that they farm, walk the land every day, you do become sort of emotionally attached to it. This for me personally is about trying to, to build a bit of a legacy and, in, and invest in the land for the future to create something for future generations that not only gives them a beautiful environment, but also gives them a, a kind of a business model and a, a nest egg to protect that landscape for the long term those motivations are as good as any that you'd need but in addition i would say that as much innovation and entrepreneurialism in your project any other sector or, or technology sector so i think the ability to bring you know those very personal and, and very legacy driven inspirations together with just a general desire to do things differently and provide an exemplar for others is is really quite special glenn it's been fantastic talking to you um, i hope that at the right time in the project our listeners can get themselves up to Durham in norfolk and have a look around um, your good work and uh, i wish you the best of luck 